James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote a letter to the early church to encourage them in the movement of Jesus. These are practical words reminding us that authentic faith is evidenced by love and good deeds, that the movement of Jesus flows through sacrificial love. When the waves of life become choppy and rough, James teaches us how to endure, how to press in, how to seek wisdom and live for what matters most. Because God is still moving through His church, the timeless words we find on these pages are God's invitation to put faith into action and see how God wants to move through you today. Such a uh, honor and privilege to be at this great church. Uh, I live uh, here in the city uh, of Nashville, actually Franklin, and uh, on so many different occasions, I run into uh, just the great church, you know, cross point people, and we always end up uh, not just talking about um, the impact that God is making through you in a local sense, but also in a global sense. When God planted cross point, he had the nations in mind, as we saw and were reminded in that video, and so grateful for your church. And uh, whenever I'm in line uh, with somebody and we start talking about Crosspoint, uh, we'll eventually talk about Annie F. Downs and her incredible giftings and, and Casper Kevin and so many people uh, on, on, in this church that are making such an impact. So I know God gets all the glory, but I just want to honor your church and say thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the witness that you are locally, globally, domestically, and God's using you in a big way. Can we just give God a hand for just what he's doing in and through you? It's amazing. Um, we are in a series, uh, as Pastor Kevin said, studying the book of James, and, and so today we're going to be in James 4, uh, verses 13 to 17, and as you're going there, uh, know that we're looking at uh, something that is very much um, a letter from someone who is, uh, we, we call James the blue-collar theologian. We call him, you know, the, the blue-collar pastor. And so we're looking at a book from someone who loves people enough to tell them the truth. And, and uh, people sometimes get the book of James wrong. They, they mislabel it as a book of works because James is so front-loaded in the way that he has a conversation with, with the church in this letter uh, in asking them to flesh out their faith, to live out their faith. And, and sometimes people mislabel and say that it's a book of works, but it's actually a book of how it's supposed to work, not so much a book of works. Uh, sometimes people can read the book of James and think that it lacks grace and it feels like it's about religion and doing, but they actually misunderstand it because it's not about uh, a lack of grace, but how grace is supposed to flesh itself out out of our lives. It's not so much about doing so that we can become Christians, but hey, if we are Christians, then we do what we be, not we do to become. And the book of James is just one of those kind uh, of conversations. Anybody here have a friend where um, you just know like whenever that person's around, that person is gonna make sure that uh, in the environment that they're in, the thing that everybody's thinking but is afraid to say is been said? <laughs> James is that person. You know, James is kind of a non, uh, you know, no holes barred kind of a person. And, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's one of these conversations where he has the, the love and the courage to, to tell us the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, but he doesn't do that because he enjoys 
lathering things up and enjoys being confrontational. He just loves us enough to tell us the truth, even though it might be what we don't want to hear, but we know it's what we need to hear. And James is one of those people. The overthrusting idea of James is, the book of James is, uh, you know, James is talking to a group of believers and he's asking them to be believable. He's talking to a group of believers and, and he's talking to these Christians. He's asking them to be Christians that are Christ-like. He's talking to a people of grace and asking them to be gracious, to be graceful and let the overflow of what God's done in us, right, live itself out through us. And that's James. I'm a dad, you know, and uh, I've got two kids. And if you talk to my kids, they'll tell you that they grew up with a sentence that was the departing sentence of just about every time that we were together, and they left mom and dad. I'm talking about every time they went on a mission trip, every time they, they went off to school, every time that we dropped them off at school, every time that they would have a, you know, a circumstance where they would kind of huddle up with mom and dad, and then they would leave our presence we always looked at our kids and said the same thing over and over again. My kids can tell you they grew up being dropped off at school, and as they were being dropped off at school, dad, every single time the doors opened up in front of the school and they were walking out of the car, said to them the same thing, and so did mom. And it was always this, remember who you are and remember whose you are. And I'd love to tell you that that's a profound statement that always left my kids, you know, teary-eyed as they were leaving the, the car. But usually it was just something that we had on automatic drive. And so every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when they were two, like not, not old enough to drive, as they were being dropped off, I would always like see them leaving. And I'd be like, remember who you are. And they finished the sentence and whose I am. And they'd leave. But there were days when it actually felt a little heavier. I'll never forget um, one time, uh, we had watched on TV uh, how there was a school shooting and how several people had lost their lives, several innocent children and, and a couple of teachers had lost their life in a school shooting. And, and then the next morning, we, we were going to school and I'm, I'm in the car with my 11-year-old son. And as we're driving to school, he's kind of bringing up, you know, that, that shooting the day before. And I'll never forget Rudy saying, Dad, you know, I, I think our school feels safe, but that school that we just watched on TV felt like it was a really safe one. And, and he's 11 and he's wondering, you know, like what, what is the guarantee that today when I go to school, I'll never get to come back. And we're talking about the 17, 18 lives that were gone. And we were talking about like, you know, preventative measures that maybe he could, could exercise to be more prepared and everything. And, and I'll never forget as, as we were talking all about, about all the different things that, that every parent thinks about when they drop their kids off at school, especially when, you're in the light of that kind of a news that came down the pike. I, I, the door opened up and I looked at him and I said, hey, I, I, I can't go to school with you today. I can't follow you in there. And even if I could, I'm not sure even if I was there at every single class, if I could afford you 100% guarantee. But I can tell you this, you need to remember whatever you're going to face, remember who you are and remember whose you are. Because I don't know what, you, what you're going to hold in the next few hours, but I know who's holding you in the next few hours. My daughter uh, is uh, studying to, to, to take the LSATs these days, you know? And she's getting ready to go to school, uh, hoping that she'll come here and either go to Vanderbilt or, uh, you know, Belmont, hint, hint, if anybody's listening and knows somebody, all right? And, and as she's studying uh, for the LSATs, the other day we were talking, and, and uh, as we were talking, you know, the conversation came up about how, like, a lot of kids are, like, who are not prescribed Adderall will take Adderall to, like, load up on study and take a better LSAT. And, 
And even in that conversation, you know, because she's not prescribed Adderall, it was such a great opportunity to just kind of bring in this reality that, hey, you're bigger than what you take and you're bigger than this score. And so what you don't need to do is debunk your faith and your consistency with God. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. And over and over again, that has been the automatic reminder. And that is literally the essence of what James is saying to this church. He's talking to a bunch of Christians and he's saying, it's one thing if lost people act like they're lost, but you're God's people. You ought to be different from the patterns of this world. He's saying that there's an expectation of those who belong to God. Who are you? I'm a Christian. Whose are you? I belong to King Jesus. There's an expectation for the citizens of the kingdom of God to have allegiance to the king and that kingdom being enhanced. Does that make sense? And James is all about really bringing before us as Christians an expectations for us to have a consistency in what we sing, actually not being contradicted, but complemented in the lives that we live. And so he does that here uh, in, in James 4. And as he does, in this particular context, he's actually talking to a group of merchant believers a bunch of people who are making their plans. And as they're making their plans in their business, they're planning and they're spending without necessarily putting God as preeminent in those daily trenches of every one of their decisions. And so he's addressing this with them. And again, uh, this is love talking, and it might not be what they want to hear, but it's vital and it's what they need to hear. And so let's read it together. Acts 4, 13. He says, now listen. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, and carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know, you don't, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is written, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, then it is sin for them. And so he's aiming and he's concluding based out of the the life that they're living that they're making uh, three big mistakes. And so what I want us to do this morning is to, to look at these three conclusions that he's come up with, and then the big question that it begs coming out of those three conclusions, and not just go, this is what James is saying to them, but this is what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And so this is God asking us this question. The first thing that James notices is that they're planning. And by the way, God's not against planning, right? God wants us to plan. Some of you are over planners. Anybody here an over planner? Some of you are under planners. God wants us to be like right in the middle, planning with a heavy pencil, <laughs> right, with an eraser. And, and he's, oh, God's not against planning, but what he's saying is that these people are planning, and as they're planning, they're planning with compartments. They're planning with God in certain aspects of their life, but not in every aspect of their life. They're saying, God, you're worthy of being allowed to be at the core of my decision-making in certain avenues of my life, but you're not worthy of every decision-making avenue of my life. And so the question I would boomerang right back to us this morning is, are we allowing God 
to be in on the planning of every aspect of our life. And I'm not even saying, are you allowing God to bless your plans? No, the question for the Christian is not, God, can you bless my plans? But are we saying, God, bless me with being in on your plans for my life? Because my plans are very obstructed. My plans are very me-centered, if I'm not careful. But your plans are always better for your kingdom and always better for me. I just have to learn to trust that your plans are greater than my plans. Can I ask you a question? Are you planning without God being in on every facet of every aspect of your planning? For these guys uh, that he's talking to in this particular context, he's talking to them about the way that they're planning for their business and the way that they're planning with their spending, with their money. But beyond that, how are you planning your dating relationships? Is God allowed in certain aspects of your life? Is God allowed in the, the songs that you sing on a Sunday morning, the way that you spend you know, certain hours of your day, but he's not allowed in other aspects of your day? And what we tend to do sometimes is that we tend to say, God, you're worthy in certain aspects of my life to sit on the throne, but in other aspects, I don't really know if I want you to be the Lord in that particular facet. If we are a temple and God enters through the foyer, the heart, do we say to God, God, you can be the landlord of every single room? Or do we say, God, you can be the landlord of every single room except this one room and this one dark closet that you don't have a key to? And if God is really not the Lord of all of us, then he's he really the Lord of any of us. If God is ultimately a guest to certain rooms, is he really the landlord of every single facet? Have we really brought the deed of our life over to him and said, God, I want you to take reign of everything that I am. And James is asking them, hey, why are you planning? But as you're planning and you're, and you're spending, why is God on the outside looking in instead of being at the very core of everything that you're deciding to do? I mean, so many of us, if we were to be honest, compartmentalize our faith and say, God, you can be allowed in this, but on this one, I got this one on my own. And what James is saying is you lack wisdom and humility when you decide that this is going to be more about self-centeredness and self-provision, and it's a little me monster saying, I got this one on my own. And we ought to realign. We ought to recalibrate and say, you know what, God? I want you in every aspect of my life. I've got a friend, and he uh, um, was a car dealer for years, and he was a really good one, very successful car dealer. And one time he called me and he said, hey, um, I want you to pray for us. He said, uh, I'm having a really hard time. He said, I, um, as a car salesman working at this, uh, at this dealer, uh, he said, I, um, I, I just don't know what you know, I'm supposed to do. He said, I just walked into a management meeting and the guy that actually owns the dealership is giving a lot of incentives to, to push bigger sales. And the only way to really be rewarded with these new incentives is he wants me to go down line and tell all the other salesmen under me, under my leadership, that we're supposed to do certain things in the way we communicate, you know, numbers to, to customers that come on the car lot. And he said, in, in all honesty, it's just not honest. He said, the only way that I'm going to have to, I mean, if I was to be really honest, the only way that I'm going to have to, to navigate through this is to go tell my car salesman that we're going to get really fuzzy about certain numbers and honestly be very dishonest about certain numbers to people. And, and, and we're going to have to lie in order to, to meet certain marks to sell these certain cars. And he said, and I'm just driving away and I'm just like really, really conflicted. I don't know what to do. And I said, bro, the fact is that you just call me and you know exactly what to do. 
you know that what you're saying is that you're struggling with this reality that from, you know, from a certain amount of time, from nine o'clock when you come to work to five o'clock when you leave work, this person is saying, compartmentalize your faith and say, God, you're allowed from like 6 a.m. when I wake up to like nine o'clock when I walk in, but from nine to five, you sit in the corner because I have to hit certain parameters in order to be successful at work. And, and I know that sounds really like strong until we realize most of us so many times do the same thing. We go, God, you're allowed in this, but you're not allowed in this. You're allowed in my dating life, but you're not really allowed in my wallet. You're not allowed. And God is a selfish God. He has, here, this, check this out, the audacity as God to want to be God in every single facet of your life. And so if God desires that, and we look at God and say, some but not all, then is he really our God? Are we really faithful? I'm married, and I've been married for uh, 30 years now. And what if I came to my wife uh, on her birthday? It's about to come up. And so and what if I came up to my wife on her birthday, and I said, I've got this great gift for you. Happy birthday, baby. She says, thank you, honey. And I said, look, here's a card. And, and she opened up the card. It was just full of, like, all these flowery things. Like, it just felt like a, worship, like a sweet song, you know, like all these sweet things that were said. And, and at the end of it, the very bottom of it, I said, I just, I want you to know that as we come from this birthday to your very next birthday, I plan to be faithful to you, wholeheartedly faithful to you for 300 days of the next year. What, why are you laughing? That's some pretty good odds. That's like 75% faithfulness right there. What do you think my wife would say? I think my wife would look at me and go, there's about 65 days missing out of the year. What are you talking about? And so what if I looked at her and said, man, you're so demanding. You know, what if I do this? Why don't I just go all the way up to 350? You know, you're good. I mean, this is a hard bargain. Why don't I go to 350? She'd look at me and she'd go, there's still 15. And what if I said... Oh my goodness, like you are so selfish. You know what, can I just have, can the brother have one day to go to Vegas and let what happens in Vegas stay in Vegas? If I went to my wife and I gave her 364 days out of 365 days, if I literally with a Sharpie wrote over my card and said, from now you're gonna get 364, what is she gonna say to me? She's gonna go, what about that one? How many of you in, in this room who are married are saying, I would expect the same? How many of you who are not, not married yet but are about to get married say, I would expect the same? Can I just ask you something? Why should God's standard be lower than yours? In every relationship worth having, every relationship that's worth its weight is a relationship built around consistency, right, and built around faithfulness. Now, none of us bat a thousand in that when it comes to the human reality, but the beauty of God is that God is a God who is constantly faithful to us. And he looks at us and he says, you're not going to bat a thousand, but I don't want you to lean on that as your excuse. I want you to want constant faithfulness towards me. And God is a God who literally loves us enough to say, I don't want you planning your life. I don't want you participating in any aspect. I don't want you to spend your time, treasure, and talent without me at the foundation of every decision of your life. Number two is presuming a guaranteed tomorrow. They weren't just planning without God, but they were just presuming that everything was gonna be guaranteed to them day after day after day. And I don't know about you, but I think we're there sometimes in our lives. I mean, I'm you know, now in my early 50s, and you know, I certainly don't feel like I used to when I was 20. You know, when I was 18, 19, 20, and in college, 
I would literally at midnight go eat 19 tacos <laughs> and think I was invincible. And now as I'm 50, I'm thinking about, you know, like the reflux, you know, and <laughs> the cholesterol <laughs> and everything else. But I don't know about you, but I just wake up every day presuming that I'm going to be afforded another day. And, and James isn't saying when he says that life is a vapor, that life is insignificant, he's saying life is significant. And we treat life actually as though it's insignificant when we treat life with the presumption that we're guaranteed another day, another day, and another day. And so we lose the urgency of this particular moment that God has given us for this such a time as this. And he's saying, listen, they weren't just a people who were kind of compartmentalizing their faith. They were people who were at ease because they just presumed that they had the next day and the next day and the next day. And none of us are guaranteed another day. And so here's a way to ask it. Like, I'll just make it personal for me. So I'm not just a chef cooking and feeding a bunch of people and leaving the shift still hungry myself. All right. If this was my last sermon and I wasn't afforded another week to come back and preach, what would I say to you if this was my last sermon? What would I say to my wife if I knew this was my last day to get to have dinner with her? What would I do with my kids? What would I, how would I spend my life? How would I spend my resources that God's given me? How would I spend my time? How would I spend my mouth, right? How would I spend my eyes if I knew that this was my last day? What does it look like to seize the moment? Carpe diem, right? What does it look like for us to not waste every single hour that God has has given us by saying we want to be a good steward of today because I don't know what tomorrow holds or if I'm even going to be here? What kind of urgency would come if not as a contradiction to blessed assurance, not as a contradiction of eternal security, we said, because I know I have eternal security. Anybody here, you know where you're going to end up, even if tomorrow you're not here on earth, because I have eternal security. Don't miss this. I know that I'm a war already won, so I'm going to fight like I've never fought before for the glory of God right now, right here. What does it look like if you know you're going to win at the end? And so because you know you're going to win at the end, you just start throwing into the end zone as much as you can. And, and James is, is admonishing this group. He is challenging this group. He, he loves them enough to even confront this group to say, you're compartmentalizing your faith, and God wants it in every aspect, but you're also at ease because you just presume you have tomorrow, and life is fragile, and life is frail, and listen, you're not sure that you're going to have tomorrow. And then the last thing he says is, you're not just presuming a guaranteed tomorrow. You're also kind of playing dumb. You're presuming that you don't know some of this when you do. And he says, hey, it's a curse when you know exactly what you're supposed to do, but you pretend like you don't. Because if you know what you're supposed to do, you're actually responsible and you can't wiggle around and just kind of, you know, say, well, I had no idea, God. So how can I be responsible for what I didn't know when you do? What James is saying is, hey, I'm talking to a bunch of Christians. And the expectation for Christians is that Christians are going to act like Christians. And it's not that you didn't know any better. I remember when I was, uh, uh, when I, when I, when I was at that stage in life where our kids were like nine years old, 10 years old, almost every Saturday we'd go to a birthday party. And, uh, and my son was 10 and he had gone to a birthday party that was at an inflatable park. What I mean by that is basically they take an old gym and they put like 10 inflatable games in there, but they're not like inflatable, like bouncy houses for three-year-olds and four-year-olds. They're like inflatable games for like 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds. And he came back from the party and he was like, that is what I want to do for my birthday. And, and, I, and I just remember like 
just looking at these games and, and literally telling my wife, look at these games. They are just lawsuits waiting to happen. I mean, it's one thing if we're attending, it's another thing if we're throwing it. And it's like on our dime and we've invited these people into this gauntlet of pain. I mean, like they were just crazy. One of them, you put a harness on a 10 year old, the kid runs down this inflatable runway until the harness then yanks the kid back. It's like a chiropractor's dream come true, you know? Another one were these big old gloves, all right? And you put these big old gloves on and you stood in this thing and you just basically like kind of hit each other. Except the problem was as soon as you touched something, the glove fell off. And so you basically were like pretty much by the end of it, kids were like just beating each other down, you know? And it was a dentist's dream come true, you know? And, and this whole thing was just a gauntlet of lawsuits. And, and I tell my wife, I'm like, this is crazy. Like, we're going to have this and Rudy wants to have this. And, and she was like, no, 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 no. They've got it figured out. Like, they, they covered their bases. Like, they don't want to get sued, the people doing the games. And they don't want you to get sued, the people running the party, paying the bill. And so they make you watch a safety video. That, and then at the end of it, you sign a waiver where you don't like sue anybody if you put your kids, like if you're a bad enough parent to put your kids out there, it's on you, boo. All right, so that's what they do. And so fast forward a couple of weeks later, we have this party. There are about 30, you know, just rabid boys, just like basically, you know, look like just a Red Bull convention. All right, you know, and they're sitting there and they're all watching this flat screen TV before the doors open up to like let them in to all these nine games. And um, I'm standing there with my friend Andy Underwood, who's brought his two sons. And Andy and I are talking while the kids are watching this, like, you know, video. And um, as we were talking, Andy stops looking at me in the conversation and starts, like, looking down at the crowd of kids that were watching the video. And he interrupts me and he goes, hey, I'm sorry, bro. He goes, "Uh, hang on a second. And he looks at his son and he goes, son, Noah, what are you doing? And Noah, his oldest son, was facing him. All the other kids were watching the video. Noah had completely turned around and was just looking at his dad. And so he looks at his son. He goes, Noah, what are you doing? He goes, turn around. Look at this TV. And Noah won't do it. He's just staring at his dad. And he goes, Noah, come here. So Noah gets up, makes his way all the way to us. And I'm standing there right by my friend Andy. And he looks right at his dad. And he goes, Dad, I figured this out. If I don't watch the video, then I can, no one can blame. No, I don't know the rules. And so I can do whatever I want because I don't know the rules. I got this. And then he goes back and sits down and starts looking at us again. And I didn't know whether to punch the kid or <laughs> offer him a job. I thought it was just kind of brilliant. And I know that sounds silly, but how many of us as grown adults do that to God? God, I don't want to know what's going on with missions around the world. I don't know what's happening with the, I don't know, the foster care crisis in this city that like I'm supposed to be held responsible for as a believer. God, I don't really want to know about, what's going on. God, I don't even want to really be confronted with my sin. And so, so many times we don't just compartmentalize our faith or we don't just like make it a presumption that we have tomorrow. We play dumb with God and we go, God, I don't want to know because if I don't know, then it's out of sight, out of mind. And I want to live my faith with that. And and, and when we do that, what we're doing is we're bypassing wisdom and humility. And we're instead walking into a place of self-centeredness and saying, God, I got this on my own. And James is saying, when you do that, when those three things become a daily part of your spiritual diet, it just begs a question. I mean, what is your life anyway? And that's probably the most important question anybody could ask any of us at any time. Let me just ask you, what is 
your life. In every aspect of your life, this is the one thing that's been deemed worthy, worthy to be a part of. What is your life? The one you worship, because everybody worships. The one where you spend the most amount of your time, the most amount of your obsession, the most amount of your money, the most amount of your energy is the source who is the most worthy to be allowed in every aspect of your life. So the question is, what is your life? Uh, let, me, if I, let me ask it another way. If I was to ask someone else about you, someone who you led into your life, your own personal life, what would they say about you is your life? Your, your life, the question that he's asking is, ultimately, at the end of the day, what would everyone else say you, you are most about? Who are you and whose are you can be answered by the time, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your t- treasure, and the way you spend your talent, the one that you bow down to the most, the one who seems to stir you up the most. And the truth is that if some of us were to really look at the trajectory of our lives, we would say God is worthy of certain aspects, but another God, maybe it's athletics, maybe it's money, maybe it's just having someone to date, maybe it's something else, maybe it's influence has become something that has become worthy of every aspect of my life. And every one of us is going to come to a deathbed moment where we're going to sit there on a deathbed and we're going to look back and think, at the end of our life, what or who was it ultimately about? I'm an Alabama fan, and um, I know when I say that, 90% of the room is not as upset with me as you would have been a couple weeks ago since, you know, after 15 years, y'all beat us. As Tennessee volunteers, woo, good for you. All right, once every 15, we'll give you one of those, big deal. Anyway, so uh, I say that to say I'm an Alabama fan, and, and um, oh, thank you, four people. And I know all the other campuses probably have, the other campuses probably have just a, a group of people that, the tide is going to go better today because the tide froze up today. But uh, uh, can I just ask you a question? As an Alabama fan, what ultimately changed whether we won or lost? As a Tennessee fan, I mean, maybe you smoked a 14-year-old cigar finally, (laughs) but what ultimately changed, whether they won or lost, ultimately, it's just a game. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what's the significance of it? And the funny thing is, there are people who tithe every day. There are people who know more about the football high school player who's about to get on that team than they know about a consistency being in the Word of God, because that is their life. I was at an Alabama game one time, and uh, uh, literally at halftime at this Alabama game, they ran a video, and they said, we've been looking for Alabama's greatest fan, and many of you might consider yourself a nominee for Alabama's greatest fan, but we feel like we have finally found the single greatest fan in Alabama history. And I remember at halftime going, who in the world is that? And they, they brought out an elderly gentleman in a golf cart. They literally brought him out to, at halftime to, to midcourt, I mean, to the, the, the center of the, of the whole football stadium. And they put him there, uh, you know, at, at the 50-yard line. And they, they just put the camera on this man. And, and 100,000 people started clapping for him. And I don't remember his name, but they said, this is Alabama's greatest single uh, fan that we've ever had. They said, first of all, he has never missed an away or home game in person. In all of his life, a man in his mid-80s has never missed one game. And then the guy goes, even when he was in his mother's womb, she traveled to every single game. I was like, that's crazy. 
Then they go, he's named his son, and they named his son, his name, and he was after one of our coaches, you know, former coaches, and they named his daughter, and he named his daughter after one of our great football players, and, and they showed pictures of his house, and, and his fireplace mantle was just nothing but like a temple to the University of Alabama's football program, and, and his, his like back room, he literally had AstroTurf in his house, you know, and, and all this different stuff, and then they said, and then look, and they, they brought the camera, like the live camera to him, and this elderly man sitting there, right? They zoomed in, and as they zoomed in, his socks said Bama. His shoes said something like Roll Tide on the shoes. And then they said, and we won't show it, but even his underwear band says Roll Tide. And everybody clapped, and everybody cheered, and, and it just felt funny and whimsical and cool and everything. But I thought, wow. I mean, at the end of his life, he will lay in bed, and, and what anybody would have to say about him is, what is your life? And his life is, I never missed an Alabama game. And how low have you shot? Because football makes a great sport, but it makes a horrible God. And what does it look like? What does it look like for us to look back at the end of our life and go, when we're on our deathbed, did we double down on football? Did we double down on making as much money as we can at work? Did we double down on getting as many toys as possible? Did we double down on getting as much followers as we can on social media? What does it look like for us to shoot so much higher, to aim so much bigger and say, I want to live a life where I say, God, you, you, the one true God, was worthy of sitting on the throne of every aspect of my life. And God wants that for us because he loves us just the way that we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. You know, in something like football, it's very black and white. I mean, like anybody who's that much of a fanatic, right, certainly needs to be reminded that he's chased and he's climbed up a ladder and he's become successful at something that's actually made him a failure. But the truth of the matter is that it gets a little more complicated when some of us go, you know what, I've doubled down and the non-compromising place in my life is I've just became the family man that I'm supposed to be. Or I, I, it's a noble thing to say I became a person who had great, attained great education in my mind and I learned a lot of things and I got a lot of degrees and I, or I did this and that. And, and sometimes it can be a noble cause, but a noble cause that becomes an idol that takes the place that only God himself deserves becomes a curse. And the problem wasn't that these people were planning. Planning is actually a godly principle. The problem wasn't that they were spending. It's not even that they were profiting. They were good people making a good profit at work. The problem was that they were doing these things and from the outside asking God to bless it instead of bringing all, to God, all of it to God and saying, God, you're worthy of every single aspect of my life. It all belongs to you. I don't get to give to you. I get to give back to you. And I'm yours. So can we just bow our heads just for a second, wherever we are? And can I just ask you, uh, out of love and out of grace, is there an aspect in your life? Is there a compartment in your life when you're saying, God, if I was to really be honest, I would have to say worthy are certain places in my life where, where you're allowed in, but I've just treated you like you're not worthy of my dating life or my spending habits or my thought life or the way I am at work or the way I am in this friendship. And I'll put you in time out in, in certain aspects of my life. And, and I just today want to say, God, I, I realign, I, I repent. I come and I rededicate myself to you. And I want to live a life where every day is seized for your renown 
every aspect of my life has you in the very trenches of it as the firm foundation of it. And I just submit myself before you. I just love that it is a gift and not a curse that God is selfish for the one place that maybe we don't want to give up to him the most. In moments like this, um, look at me just for a second. In moments like this, um, we're about to walk into a song and it's really easy in moments like this to just like give God our silver and gold. <laughs> it's really easy in moments like this to come to God and say, God, I'll just give you like my life. I'll build my life on you and I'll give you my life. But, but still hang on with a tight fist, one area of our life that we don't want to give him. Maybe it's the one area, like I said, of uh, your thought life. Maybe it's the one area of a relationship. Maybe it's honestly the one area of like, there's a person that God has for a long time wanted you to just give over to him and forgive. And right now, I just finally touched that one compartment, that one closet where you're going, God, you can be God of all of it. But that one closet where I wake up every day and I love you, but I hate them. They can't have that. And God's going, I want that one compartment. And in moments like this, it's that one closet we don't want to let him in. It's that one place we don't want that God wants the most. He's like, do you trust me? Am I worth it? Am I worthy enough to be led into every aspect? And so in moments like this, when we come to God and we, we sing words like worthy are you in every song and every breath and every aspect and be the foundation of every, when we come to every, the problem isn't that we don't want to give God some things. The problem is that we, we don't want to give him everything. And God's going, that's the one thing that's keeping you from me being your everything. And I want to say to you, God is a God who says, I know you don't want to let go of that, but if you let go of that, trust and see what I will do with your empty hand. Trust me. Trust me. And so, God, we just, at this moment, come before you and we, we ask for spiritual inventory in our hearts of um, every avenue, every compartment, every small closet. Come in. I, I belong to you, so if the Lord wills. My life is a vapor for, for such a short time I come and I go and I don't even know whether that means I'm around for 55 years or 85 years but I want every day to be an act of worship for you a life of trustship a life God where people say the greatest treasure of my life was bigger than um, a football game or money made or influence had it, it, it was an act of worship we pray this in your name.